All right, that's a little bit outdated. But how many of you still have landlines, landline telephones, honestly? Wow, still a few of you. I think most of those kids who know how to work a QR code don't even know what a landline telephone is. <clears throat> but it's not just technology that gets a little bit outdated. Even some of the things that we once believed. How many of you were told that if you drank caffeine, it would stunt your growth? That's what I was told when I was younger. I wasn't allowed to drink soda with caffeine in it. And now that I'm older, I don't even drink soda, but I feel like I missed out on all those really good flavors when I was a kid. Not that I needed the caffeine. But come to find out, caffeine actually doesn't stunt your growth. And so technology can be a little bit outdated. Sometimes the things that we once thought were true are a little bit outdated. But how about the Bible? I mean, the Bible was written hundreds of years ago. Parts of the Bible were written over a thousand years ago. And so are there teachings in the Bible that are just outdated? Like, yeah, we can pick through the Bible, that's for today, or that's not for today. I think most Americans would say that absolutely, the Bible's outdated. We've made so many advancements in science and technology. There's so much information right at our fingertips that we kind of know better than the Bible. A lot of people, if they even believe the Bible at all, they'll just pick and choose what they want to believe from the Bible. They'll treat it kind of like a buffet. A little bit here, a little bit there, but then there's some teachings in the Bible, oh, we stay away from that, that's not true. And I understand why they treat the Bible that way. They don't want to just throw it all away, but at the same time, it doesn't really make sense to me. Because if I'm completely honest with you, if there are things in the Bible that aren't true, then I don't want to devote my life to following a book full of lies. Like We can just throw the Bible away. We can pack up this morning. We don't even need to be here. But if the Bible is really the word of God, if it is true, then it should be the highest authority in our life. That it's not... It's not our responsibility or for us to be like the ones who are the highest authorities to pick and choose what in the Bible is true or what is not true. And I don't just believe the Bible because I grew up in church. I don't just believe the Bible because the Bible says that it's true. But I believe that God cannot lie and that everything in this book is absolutely true. That this is reliable. There's no inconsistencies in it. And that it is historically reliable as well. I think in America, we just think of the Bible as another holy book. Like there's the Book of Mormon, there's the Quran, and there's the Bible. But after being in Israel, I've seen that this is more than just a spiritual book. People look at it as being historically accurate. Like they're uncovering sites and places that are actually talked about in the Bible. And so this is why I believe the Bible is true. And this is why... I think it's important to believe everything in the Bible, even when some of the things that it teaches are a little bit hard to swallow, even when, when some of the teachings are kind of unpopular. Just because a teaching in the Bible is unpopular, it doesn't make it untrue. And so over the course of the next few weeks, we'll be talking about some of the teachings in the Bible that are kind of unpopular or hard to swallow but are still true. And this morning, we'll be covering the topic of hell. And so now we can't say that 
we give all the hard sermons to Kurt, because I think that this one might be up there on the top of the list of tough topics to talk about. But Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible, and he actually had more to say about hell than he did about heaven. So before we get into the main passage, I want to just talk a little bit about what hell is and what hell is not. If you're any bit like me, maybe you grew up thinking of hell kind of like this. Maybe you think of heaven as God's kingdom where God reigns, and then hell is like the flip-flop of that where Satan is the ruler, and hell is Satan's domain, and he comes and goes as he pleases, and he just wants to drag people down into hell. And I think that this is a misunderstanding that comes from Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, Hades is the god of the underworld, and so hell is his domain, and he rules it, and he can come and go as he pleases. But this is not really a biblical view of hell, because what we know from the Bible is that God created hell for Satan and for the fallen angels that we also know of as demons. And we get this from this verse in Matthew 25, 41, where it says, He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the surrounding context of this verse is it's about when Jesus comes back to earth and he divides people up between his followers and the people who don't follow him. And what we learn from this verse is that hell was created for Satan and for demons to spend the rest of eternity. And we also know from this verse that it's also the destination of those who haven't placed their faith in Jesus for salvation. Now maybe you could ask, why would a loving God allow people to go to hell? Maybe you've heard this question before. Maybe this is a question that you've wrestled with. And that's a really tough one. But I'll do my best to explain the answer for this with an illustration. So a few weeks ago, if you were with us, I gave an illustration about my dog. Well, it just so happened that that Saturday night, I put him in his crate and I draped this blanket across his crate. And so then I, I left him in his crate, left the house to go to the church and do a run-through of my sermon. And I came back in the evening, and I just couldn't wait to get to bed. It was already way later than I wanted to stay up. And I realized that my dog had made a mess in his crate. Now, I'm going to warn you, this might be a little bit gross. But he did a really messy poop in his crate. And he likes to take this blanket draped across the crate and, like, scrape it into the crate and tuck it in. And so he was covered in poop, and this blanket was covered in poop. And it was, like, 10 o'clock at night. I didn't want to give this dog a bath. This was the last thing I wanted to deal with. And so I had a couple of options. Number one, I could take this blanket and just chuck it, throw it away, get it out of my house. That's actually what I did. I just threw it in a snowdrift outside. Like, I will deal with that later, not messing with it tonight. The other option is to clean up that blanket, which is a lot messier, takes some intentionality and some work. But let me tell you what was not an option. I wasn't about to take this blanket and be like, you know what? I can just pretend that it doesn't have any poop on it. <laughs> And then, like, 
take this bed, this blanket to bed with me and like curl up in it and go to sleep. That was not an option at all. Now let me make some comparisons here. I think we're a lot like this poop-covered blanket. <laughs> this, hopefully you remember a little bit more than this at the end of the service. Like, I'm just a poop-covered blanket. But I, we might not be covered in poop, but we all have sin in our lives. I don't think that I have to try to convince you that we are born as sinners. Nobody has to teach a young child how to be selfish or how to lie. And so... That sin in our lives is like poop, and it, it separates us from our relationship with God. God is perfect and holy, and he can't have anything to do with sin. And so our default is to be like this blanket that is just cast away from the presence of God. We can't expect a perfect and loving God to just embrace sin, pretend like it's not there, because that's like cuddling with poop. All right, but here's, here's the thing. God loved all of these sin-covered blankets. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, into the world to pay the price for our sin on that cross so that if you place your faith in him, if you believe in Jesus, that he is the son of God, and you believe that what he did on the cross was enough to save you of your sins, then that takes care of the sin problem. And so that when God sees you, he doesn't just see your sin and your brokenness, but he sees what Jesus did for you on the cross. And then you can have a relationship with God for all of eternity. And so if somebody ends up in hell, it's because they've never heard about Jesus or what he did on the cross. Or it's because they've heard that message and they still chose not to believe and not to follow after God. And my hope for us this morning as we talk about hell is that we're not just going to have a lot more information about hell. That we're not just going to walk away knowing a bunch of facts. But that if you are not a follower of Jesus, that you would see the abundant life and the relationship that he offers you. And my hope is that you would turn to him. My hope too is that Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, that this would motivate you to take the message of the gospel to people who don't yet believe. So if you'd like to follow along with me, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, and we'll be picking up in verse 19. We also have the verses up here on the screen if you'd like to follow along. And if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles on the tables just beyond those doors. You are more than welcome to pick up one of those Bibles and take that home with you. That is a gift from us to you. And so if you're ready to go, verse 19, let's get it. Oh, actually, let me preface this by saying that this is a parable. A parable is a fictional story that teaches a spiritual lesson. And so this is a parable that Jesus is telling a whole group of people, and the characters in this story are not real characters. But the fact that these are fictional people doesn't take away from the reality of heaven and hell. Because that's the whole point of this parable, is that heaven and hell are absolutely real. So verse 19, it says, 
There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So now that we've read through that whole passage, I just want to go back now and unpack three surprises about hell. Three surprises that the rich man realized when he ended up there. And the first surprise about hell is that good people go there. Now I have good in quotation marks there because by God's standards, no one is good unless they've been cleaned up by Jesus, unless their sins are forgiven and they have a relationship with him. But most people think of themselves as good people by the standards of the world, by the standards of society. And actually, when we look at the rich man in this story, I want us to see if we can even find any indication that this was just such a wicked, awful guy. Let's go back to verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the only thing that this rich man could be accused of is maybe the fact that he neglected to be generous to this poor man, Lazarus. It's not a bad thing to be rich. We know there's a bunch of people in the Bible who were rich. King David was rich, Abraham was rich, Daniel was rich, and I think that we can expect to see them in heaven. So, And Jesus doesn't even say that he got all of his riches by being a bad guy. It's not like he was running a black market, he wasn't in the mafia, he wasn't a murderer or anything like that. And in fact, this would have been a shock to the audience that Jesus was talking to, that this guy ended up in hell. Because in the day that Jesus was telling this parable, a lot of people thought that if somebody was rich, 
then it was obvious that God was blessing that person's life. And so they look, they hear this part of the parable and they think of the rich man and they're like, oh yeah, that man's going to heaven. God loves that guy. And then the reverse is also true. When they hear the description of Lazarus, they would probably think this guy is being cursed by God because of his sin or maybe the sin of his parents. But what we read from this parable that that is not actually true. This rich man probably thought that he was on the pathway to heaven, but finds out that even good people go to hell. I think a lot of people in America, they would say that they're on the pathway to heaven. Only one out of 200 Americans believe that they would go to hell when they die. So just about everybody thinks that they're going to be just fine. Out of the 64% of Americans, or 64% of Americans believe that they will go to heaven, and 34% just don't even believe in heaven at all. So if anybody believes in heaven, it's really likely that they think that they're going to end up there. And if you were to ask anybody off the sidewalk, like, why do you think that you'll go to heaven when you die? Their answer for you is probably that they're a good person. And it's awesome that they're a good person. But the scary thing that we read in this parable is that being a good person, it doesn't really cut it. That isn't enough. And the second surprise about hell is that it's absolutely horrific. Let's go ahead and look in verse 23. It says, In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, it might sound a little bit weird that Lazarus is with Abraham. You'd be like, what? If, if he's in heaven, why doesn't it say that he's with God? And this is an association that the Jewish audience, I think, would have understood. Because Abraham was the father of their nation. God chose Abraham. He spoke with Abraham. He blessed Abraham. And so... They knew for sure Abraham would be in, in heaven in the presence of God. And so for Lazarus to be with Abraham, it means that he is in heaven. And we also know that the rich man here, he is in hell. And it is far worse than he could have even imagined. And I think there's two observations that we can make from this passage. And the first is that he just wanted a little bit of relief because his suffering was so awful. He's asking for just the tiniest drop of water on his tongue. Now, how many of you could ever take just a little drop of water, put that on your tongue, and be like, ah, yes, I feel so satisfied now. Like, I take a water bottle to mealtimes 
because I drink so much water and I hate to constantly be filling it up all the time. So even those disposable cups that are like this big, don't even mess with those. Like it's not worth it to fill it up 10 times. But there was this time when I was with my friends and we decided to go hiking. And I'm pretty sure we thought it would only be a short hike. And I don't think we packed any water. Because all I remember is that this was the middle of summer. It was blazing hot. And I was so thirsty. This hike was at least five miles, if not ten. It was so long ago. But all I remember is finally making it back to the car and just searching for anything to drink. And all we had were some Capri Sons. So those are like those juice boxes wrapped in tinfoil that you have to stab a hole with a straw. And so those things were probably 100 degrees after sitting in the car for so long. But we're like, anything. So we're squeezing every little drop of that. And it gave us relief from our dehydration and just how thirsty we were. Normally, if somebody handed me a Capri Sun and was like, hey, it's 100 degrees, you want some? I'm like, no thanks, I don't want that. And so for this guy to be asking for just a little drop of water, I think it, it shows us the condition that he's in, the extent of his agony where even a little drop of water would give him some relief from what he's feeling. And the second observation is that there is a chasm between heaven and hell. That the rich man couldn't cross over to get to heaven. Nobody from heaven was going to be able to cross over to get to hell. And so once he was in hell, there was nothing that the rich man could do to get out of there. The best way to stay out of hell is to not go there to begin with. And I think that this is the scariest reality of hell. That once you're there, that's the destination for all of eternity. And what's scary to me, too, is that a lot of people just have a very flippant view of hell. I think our, our culture just downplays how severe hell really is. If you listen to popular music, there's a lot of songs just describing this life as hell. And what's really sad is that there is nothing in this life that could be thrown at you that could even compare to how awful hell is. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people on the highway to hell who will get there and realize that it's not anything like they thought it would be. I've heard some people say that they would want to go to heaven for the climate and go to hell for the company. They think that heaven is like a never-ending church service, and it's just full of holy rollers and Bible thumpers. But if you want to have a good time, then you go to hell because that's where the fun people are. But in reality, I think that being in heaven is being in the presence of God where everything good is. And being in hell is being separated from the presence of God where there is nothing good. And everything bad is just a hundred times worse. So to think of heaven, I think of taking all the good things in this life, get rid of all the bad things, and multiply that by a hundred. And maybe that's just a little taste of what heaven is. But then to get a picture of hell, imagine removing anything good from this life, taking all the sin and the brokenness and the junk and the pain and multiply that by a hundred. And I think that's where we can get a picture of hell. And it is far worse 
than we can even imagine. And the third surprise about hell is that the Bible is the best witness to keep people out of there. We'll keep on reading in verse 27. It says, and this is the, the rich man asking Abraham. He, said, he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And so sometimes maybe we think that hell is full of guys having a good time and they just want more company. Like, yeah, when's my buddy going to get here? But in reality, people in hell, they don't want anybody else to go there. They probably don't even want their worst enemy to go to hell and to experience what they are experiencing. And so the biggest thing on this man's mind is to keep his brothers away from this awful destination. And so he's asking Abraham, like, can you send Lazarus back to earth so that Lazarus can rise from the dead and go to his brothers and be like, hey, I'm back from the dead and I have a message. And they'll be like, whoa. It's a dead man. He's alive. What's the message? Oh, hell, that sounds really bad. We don't want to go there. But Abraham is saying, even if they saw that sign, even if they saw a dead person come back to life to talk to them about how awful hell is, they still wouldn't listen if they've already been told the truth of the Bible and rejected that truth. When Abraham talks about Moses and the prophets, that's a way of referring to the Old Testament because it was written by Moses and a bunch of other prophets. And he's saying that this is the best message to keep people out of hell. And today, we have the Old Testament, but on top of that, we even have the New Testament and the teachings in the Bible about Jesus. And this is the message that we can take to people to share with them the good hope of spending all of eternity with God instead of spending eternity in separation from God. Back in 1860, there was the worst coal mining accident in all of Britain's history. Hundreds of men went down into this coal mine just for another day of work. One of the risks of coal mining is that as you chip into the coal, it sends flammable gas into the air. And they had this ventilation system down there, some new technology that was keeping them safe. And there hadn't been an accident in about two years. But on this tragic day, the air caught on fire. And in an explosion, dozens of men were trapped in a heap of rubble. And then that explosion blocked more than 100 men down there in that mine. And at the end of the day, there were about 146 men and boys who lost their lives in this terrible accident. Now, can you imagine preaching a sermon on that following Sunday when that just happened in your hometown? What would you talk about? Would you talk about 
the terrible mining conditions or all the safety precautions that they could have taken so that something like that would never happen? Well, there was a young preacher named Charles Spurgeon who was preaching at the biggest church in London. And he was up to preach the Sunday following that tragic event. And that morning, he chose to ask his congregation, what if you were one of those fathers or mothers who said goodbye to your son to go off into that mine and you never talked to him about Jesus? What if you were the wife of one of those men who went down into that mine and he never heard about Jesus from you? And it is from this sermon that he gave the quote that he's probably most famous for. He said, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go there unwarned, unprayed for. And I know that hell is one of those really hard topics to talk about. It's, it's really unpopular. It's not the thing that you can just bring up in casual conversation. But talking to people about where they will spend their eternity is probably the most loving thing that we can possibly do. And who is it in our lives where if they were to die tomorrow, that they would die without ever hearing from you the message of salvation and how they can have a relationship with Jesus for all of eternity. I know if I just point that question back at myself, there's a few people that I really need to talk to about Jesus. And so I really want to challenge you to not just hear a message like this and know some more information about hell, but that it would motivate you to take the gospel to these people in your lives. And I know it's tough to have this kind of conversation with people. There's not like a secret formula or a cookie cutter way to go about having that conversation. But there are a few verses that I think are super helpful for sharing the gospel. And all of these verses are right from the book of Romans. I just cherry picked them from Romans. And I'm going to read them to you. And at the end of this, I'm going to offer uh, these verses to you to keep in your back pocket, maybe to, to look up the references and to highlight those references in your Bible so that you can walk people through these verses. But this is what it says in Romans. For all have sinned and f- fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hell is bad news, honestly. But If you are a believer in Jesus, you have the good news about having a relationship with God for all of eternity. And my hope for us is that if you are not a believer, 
that you would place your faith in Jesus for salvation. And if you are a believer, that you would be motivated to take this message to those who don't yet believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you loved us even in our sin and even in our brokenness, that you desired to have a relationship with us and to make us right with you. God, to know you and have a relationship with you for just one single day and then even to spend all of eternity in hell is far more than we deserve. But for you to make a way for us to know you every single day of this life and to spend all of eternity with you in heaven is an incredible blessing. And God, we want everybody to be able to experience that. And so I ask that you would motivate us, that you would help us to share the gospel with the people in our lives who don't yet know you. Help us to have that intentionality, to see them the way that you see them. Sometimes, God, I confess, we just get so caught up in the busyness of life and doing one thing to the next or talking about entertaining topics or things that are superficial. But I ask that you would work in our hearts, that even in our personal lives, we would be thinking about the gospel. We would think about eternity. And I ask that that would transfer over in the way that we talk with people, the way that we interact with them. And I ask that you would use us to be a part of what you do in changing lives. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.